Gaming NBS episode 238 being recorded April 14th, 2019. Welcome to Gaming NBS Tabletop RPG Podcast. I'm Sean. And I'm Brett. Welcome to the show. Welcome back, folks. Glad everybody's here. Sean, how the hell are you, man? I am fantastic. I'm still I'm still coughing a little bit. Week six. I hear that. Good. It's not that. as bad. I decided that waiting until I felt 100% to get back into working out and pushing myself. Fuck that. I'm going to. You don't like this virus, huh? Huh? You want, you want me to beat, you want me to beat the body a little bit? Come on, virus. Yeah. You don't like that? Then get the fuck out of my body. Yeah, that's a, that's a ticket. So I went to the gym today and pushed myself until I couldn't move. I'm like, yeah, take, take that illness. <laughs> so we'll, we'll see if that works. I have no idea. I'll do it again tomorrow. Why not? Can't hurt. That's one way to tackle it. I only drink so much whiskey. I mean, I'm, I have a fair consumption rate of it, but I mean, I mean, <laughs> anyway, jokes aside, no. I figured, what the hell? That's all. I'm trying to work out more and be a little healthier, so what the hell? I can't just wait for this stupid sickness to go away. Right, 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 right. Anything uh, new and improved on your side? Anything cool? Amazing? Cool and amazing. No, but I have seen more people on Twitter running masks. A whole two more. Yeah? Yeah. Gentleman cool. in, a gentleman in Sweden. Get the big prop. He does not have the prop set. He's he's envy envious of my prop set. Well, most 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 people are envious of your prop set. And then uh, it's large. Heyo. And then there's the um, M O Doc. Oh, okay. DM Modoc or are rolling for box cars. He is going to be running masks, and he, I think he has the prop set. Very nice. So uh, I've told both of them, hey, we need to compare notes. Absolutely. Like I told so. you this, my buddy Lenny, when he ran Return to the Tomb of Horrors, he was on an old message board that Monty Cook had. There was a chunk of it, just, just DMs who were running that adventure, comparing notes back and forth. I think it's a damn good idea. <clears throat> well, so see, speaking oh, of running... Oh, sorry, go. I was going to say, um, my my game did not go very well this weekend. No? What did you run? Well, I only had one person show up. For what? For my 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 Star Wars FFG game. One person? Was it Kevin? Tony. Tony? Sugarloaf. Everybody else has given up on you? Well, you know, there were other commitments, and there's only four. Okay. So, you know, it was kind of a crapshoot. I figured Tony and Andy would show up. Andy showed up and said, hey, uh, whoops. Didn't realize it was a for sure thing. <laughs> oh, nice. So, so I think what I'm going to do, I got to address address those guys and doing it on the show may be a little impersonal, but I got to reach out, reorganize, reschedule. I think we're going to change the game and I'm going to open up more slots and I'll probably run Tomb of Annihilation. Done, finished, come and go, drop in, drop out. It's got a little bit more hex crawly to it. So Cool. It'll be more conducive to those that can or cannot play. And then I'm going to put it, I have to make it a dedicated effort to. This is your West Marches game you promised us. It's kind of. This is kinda, totally the West. It's a yeah, drop in, drop out West Marches thing, kinda, man. Kind of. <clears throat> oh, go out there on MeWe or something. Have people yeah. post collusion shit for each other. Yeah. It's as yeah. close as you're going to get. Yeah. Well, 
we sh- it's I think that's the route. I already know the adventure. Like I know mm-hmm. certain pieces of it and what to throw at the players. So I think that's just the way it's gonna gonna be. Hopefully well, everybody will be like on board with it and it'll cool. be fun. Yeah. This weekend I uh AJ, my youngest son, turned thirteen on Saturday. Happy birthday, teenager! Teenager. So no, I had, uh, including song. him, I had five 13-year-old boys at a D&D table. I asked oh, AJ, God. what do you want to do? And he said, we could run that game you did at school. I said, BX, the uh, basic set? He goes, yeah, that was great. That will be fun for them. And I said, you don't want like 5e? Because I know you like it. He goes, I like all the games I play because I just like to figure out the adventure, which I thought was really refreshing. And as well as things like, I need to adopt that attitude more often. I like every role-playing game because I just want to figure out the adventure. Nice. It's a good attitude. Good job, AJ. Anyway, I ran it. Uh, AJ's the only one who had a character die. <laughs> ah, the birthday boy. Succumbs. Birthday boy. Guy smoke him. He um he got mobbed by a large group of fishmen and didn't run away fast enough. And he went down and uh, he looked at me. He said, they're going to tear me apart, aren't they? I said, oh, yeah. Yeah, they are. You're dead, dead. And he goes, ah, give me another character. I slotted him a halfling, and he was, he was back to back to races. I'll tell you though, those boys played a hell of a lot smarter after one of them died. That that'll wake up some. Oh, it totally will come some up brain like, cells. And then after that, everybody had a really good idea. Uh, his one buddy, Kason, Kason could not roll a die. He couldn't roll a twenty sider to save his life. He pulled a Sean and a Brett, no dice. Right? He might as well just shown up and just flipped a coin. You know, his ideas though were awesome. Hey, what we ought to do is this. They'd argue, 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 and he'd be like, I've got the best idea. <laughs> They'd try that idea, and lo and behold, it was really the best idea of all the other ones they had. It really worked. So it was some good stuff. Good problem solving, a little role playing back and forth, dealing with different stuff. That was fun. It was a hell of a good time. And uh, yeah, the boys just, they didn't really care what version of D&D it was. When we were done, <clears throat> packed up everything. They all said thanks. It was great. They finished a pizza. They decided to go outside and run around and do whatever teenage boys wanted to run around and do. At one point, they were taking a break from that. And AJ's buddy, Danny, goes, oh, man, I wish your dad had a bigger dungeon ready for us. Because that Overland stuff was fun. But he said that he said he's got a really big dungeon, Borrow Maze. Oh. Man, that'd be really cool. You think we could get him to do that? AJ said, Danny, we, we, we don't have time for that. He's like, oh, maybe next time. <laughs> so... <laughs> I, I think I think they're hooked, which is really cool. Which is cool. I've I've run for these guys before, and they uh they they wanted me to run for them again. So I'm like, as a dad, you're always worried about that point when your teenage kid would be like, "You're not cool, old man." Oh, doesn't yeah, want yeah. anything to do with you, right? You know, at least for a while, right? Because they're all smarter than you and whatnot, right? In fact, he still wants to hang out with his old man. His buddies want to hang out with me. That was kind of cool, right? But after five six hours. Playing D and D with thirteen year old boys, I ran out of fart jokes, so we kind of had to wrap it up. <laughs> anyway, it was fun. Sounds, okay, sounds awesome, man. It was good. Other than that, what else have we got? Let's see here. We have awesome dice. We're still doing that. Yeah. So John Hammersley, just as a reminder, you won for last March, uh, the month of March. We are still doing it up until or through june nice so if you are just listening to this for the first time and you want to win a set of awesome dice from awesomedice.com go and sign up for our email list at gamingnbs.com on the front of the website 
and uh, you'll be automatically entered. Some countries are restricted. They just don't send dice there because it's just too expensive. But um, most of the, the known listenership is probably covered. Um, or what you can do is go to awesomedice.com, place an order for 10 bucks or more, use gaming BS for the promo code, and you'll get 15% off your order. Very cool. Um, yeah. So that's that. Um, let's see here in Gamehole Con update news. Tomorrow. <clears throat> yeah, tomorrow. Actually, it's uh, Game Submissions is open now. Uh, now? I thought it was the Yeah, 15th. no. Um, seven hours ago, and just like that, Game Submission is open. That was the fifteenth. Um, according Hammer, to Hammer, uh, lied to us. Does he? he is he may aware? Have. He may have. Well, he, maybe he doesn't know. <laughs> maybe he doesn't know. Maybe but he thinks it's tomorrow. He could think it's tomorrow. Right. He might well know. He might. Yeah, that's possible. <laughs> Actually, on the website, the event submission open April fourteenth noon Central Standard Time. So poor Cameron, he was off. That's because he's busy writing yeah. the the Sea Kings thing. But anyhow, it's open, and that means again, if um, we've got gamers coming to. Um, to Gamehole Con. If you're going to run a game, if you're, if you're going to do that, which we hope you do, if you're a BSer, we would love you to run it under the Gaming and BS banner. That would be really cool. We uh, we encourage you all to do that. It's great. We try to put together some gifts, some little thank yous for everybody who does it. But uh, I've actually walked up to someone and said, hey, here's the thing. And they said, oh, I don't need that. It's like running games. So regardless, we'd love it for you to run games for us. So again, come run games for us. Gaming and BS, you can run it under us. You uh, sign up for it. You go ahead and do the thing, and off you go. So, Sean, I'm thinking last year I ran a measly two games. I got to up my ante, man. I'm thinking three to four. Me too. I got to do more. uh, Only ran I ran one Trail of Cthulhu, one Avalon last year, and that's my book is going to be out. So if I don't run at least two to three Avalon games, I'm a fucking loser. So I've got to do that. You should have plenty to sell. At the table, you should be like running it, and then I should have stuff. I should have all books the with players. Me. I should have books with me, bookmarks, whatever. You should oh be- yeah, I should have all sorts of crap. See oh, you, you, you're the guy. You're the you're the marketing brains behind all this. Got to get some promo out there, man. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But anyway, I'm going to run more games, and I know Sean's been talking about it too. We're going to try to um, change things up a little bit, and just kind of how Sean and I are covering the con. We've tried. We've done kind of yeah. We've done a couple different approaches to it where we went and like tried to get seminars uh, when we had Chris Perkins a number of years ago. And then we tried a special guest, got Ed Greenwood and a couple other people. And we, I don't know if we're going to try like a, this just in from Gen Con type approach or what we want to do, but we're still ba- uh, banging around how we want to try to cover things. And one of the reasons we have the bonus BS channel which we use sometimes is for folks who don't give a shit about that type of thing because we don't want listeners who aren't going or don't care about convention coverage. Um, But it might be an interesting way if we uncover something really cool from a special guest or we bump into somebody who's got some cool news or something, it'd be a great place to share that like as it happens. So anyway, we will see. No promises yet as to how we're going to do it, but by God, we're going to do something cool, I hope. Maybe. We'll see. Yeah, cool is all relative. It totally is, as long as it's cool for you and I. <laughs> so I, I could say I'm committed. If Corey Welch wants me to run, gets me in the great race, I'm in. In for, I'm in for that. And if it's from a two to eight slot on Saturday, I'll, I'll commit. That per- that's, a, that's a done deal, yeah. So if you want to uh, – and then I may run – I'm definitely going to run more than 
two more games. I don't know if I'll run Forget About It. Maybe that one's played its way out. We'll see. Could be. Could be. We'll see. Um, Some things I'm pondering is a tomb of, tomb of horrors. horrors. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe doing that for a little while. Murder, death, kill. Would you run it AD&D or would you run it oh. the 5e version? Ah, that is the ultimate <clears throat> question, Brad. I don't know. That, in, Yawning no. Portal has it. I know. I've got both. Yeah. Yeah, so do I. I've got both. Um, I actually have a second edition version, too. Yeah. And a, third, and a third edition version, just in case you need it. Yeah, I'm not quite <laughs> sure. I'm not quite sure. I may do 5e, just... I don't know if it's less lethal in 5e. I think it is. I don't know, man. Once I, once you realize a couple different things about 5e, like, oh, when you're unconscious and someone hits you, it's an automatic critical. Every time you're automatic critical at zero, you take two death. Yeah, you're gonna fucking die. It doesn't take yeah. much. It does not take much. Yeah, we will see. I have a I have a plan. If I do it, I'm gonna try to see if I can make it a set piece, and then I'll run it for an ex- amount of time, and allow people to come in as people die. Whatever. Just have a stack of PCs. Just hand yeah. them out. Right. Once you run out of PCs, game's over. Right. Maybe something. To I mean, that it's an idea. Just an idea. Yeah, and then maybe maybe a Star Wars game. We'll see. And thinking of like random death, I'm thinking of also doing a DCC funnel. Funnels are so much fun. Every time I run a Dungeon Crawl Classics funnel, it's always been a hoot, an absolute hoot. So I may pull that out just to do something different. So at least different from what I've done in the past. Anyway, more to come. We've got some time. Game Hole Con is going to be this year, October 31st is when it starts this year. So... Again, yep. GameOldCon.com. Check it out. And we got to dress up. Oh, it's uh, April. Uh, October. Sorry, losing my mind. Oh, my God. October 31st is Halloween, isn't it? Yeah. That's right. We have to dress up. Yeah. I could dress like you. You could dress like me. Oh. How I'll, original. I'll, I'll lend you my kilt. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'll wash it before I give it to you. It'll be fine. Well, I guess you <laughs> got to go there. I don't. Can you get a quaff like mine? You have to shave, man. I can't do it. <laughs> There's not, the line, ladies. There's and the line. I'm not shaving. I'm There's, not shaving. Well, let's. All right, let's get in random encounters. Let's dig in. All right. All right. I'm going to read before I start coughing. So Michael Phillips comments on puzzles. It is sad about the uh, Sassoon files. <laughs> That's the thing to keep in mind when dealing with China. They usually have things. Uh, they usually leave things alone, but they pay special attention to when you are writing about China, and you do have to follow the laws of the country. This is talking about the um, uh, the books that were burned by uh, the Chinese government. So from a Kickstarter. From a Kickstarter, yeah, not so good. The big problem I have with the story about uh, Angie's Barbarian is that solving the puzzle was set up as a non-diegetic situation, but she was not told to engage with it for diegetic reasons. It would be I would be fine with saying her barbarian can't solve the puzzle, but not with keeping her from taking part in figuring out the solution. The puzzle is already outside the game, or they would be able to use game actions to solve it, so there should be no problem with the party talking about it outside the game. For riddles and similar puzzles, how specific an answer should have to be is a matter of what is is a matter of what is doing the assessment. If the riddle is being presented by a magic door that is not sentient, the party may need to figure out that ans- um, figure out that the answer has to be a specific word. The password spell is not flexible enough to give credit for close. But if it's a person, sure they might either 
they uh, might let other technically incorrect answers work or correct answers work. Uh, I tend to create physical puzzles in game with the solution, but I present them with sufficient detail that the players can come up with other solutions for the physical system. So we talk about Ange's Barbarian. That was just, I used that as an example, just picking on Ange as the player. The interesting thing, Mike, um, Mr. Phillips, is that I have talked to players, and even at that point, they, they, um, when it's presented outside of game, it's some players that I've dealt with, even players in my own groups, get to, nope, that's metagaming. You can't do that. Your character's a Barbarian with two intelligence. Shut up, shut up, shut up. Okay, how good your answer is. I don't care if you're a physicist. Shut up. And uh, <clears throat> I get what you're saying, though. That's and that's the the frustration. And I think that's kind of the one of the pieces you need to take into account. I think we, we tried to say that, but um, I like I like what you're saying here, Michael, because you know if if you're saying the person is not allowed to partake in the fun of that event because their character statistics are too low or their character's abilities won't let them, skills, whatever. It's kind of a bummer, especially when it's something that impacts everybody. But they just have to sit there, twiddle their thumbs, keep their mouth closed, and just drink coffee while they watch everybody else flop around trying desperately to figure something out. So, yeah. No, I get what you're saying, Michael. Very good points. And thank you, sir, for writing in. Sean. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Eric Saul's Weedo writes in about puzzles. When I first saw the episode topic, I wasn't sure if I would be interested in it due to the fact that I tend to not like using puzzles in my games. The reason being is that I am always concerned that if I create a puzzle and the player characters can't solve it, then what next? Ah, indeed. The other reason is that I am particularly not a puzzle person. If it is not a quick and dirty puzzle to solve, then I am kind of bored with it and just want to move on or bash it with my sword or axe. It was kind of the same for those video games for me growing up as well. I would have fun playing the Tomb Raider games, shooting things, jumping over obstacles, but then when I got to those to those solve the puzzle part of the mission, I would either get stuck or just give up. I did find it interesting that Brett brought a new dimension to the puzzle concept for me with his example of the portal with the monster spilling out of it. I don't know if I would have considered that a puzzle previously on how to close off the portal. I think my final comment is in regards to Brett's commentary on the fact that you can create a puzzle and not necessarily have a solution for it and allow the players to come up with something that, hey, that might be how it is solved. I partly agree with this statement. I think going into it, you should have a general idea of how the puzzle should be solved or the obstacle. I do agree, though, that if the players come up with something creative or interesting that you feel could also work based on your original concept, that you should allow that to be a solution as well. If there is only the one solution, then I think you fall into my concern that I initially stated. Then what next if the players can't find out what the one solution is? I know that I would feel, and some players I've played with in the past, that if we just randomly pick something as the solution and you as the game master allowed it to work, we may feel cheapened by the experience. In other words, you let us win and we really didn't earn it. These are just my opinions, and as we know, everyone has one. Also, sorry if this reads kind of weird. I am doing talk to text through email on my phone. Anyway, have a great day, guys. Eric. Actually, it didn't sound that bad, Eric. It didn't sound that <laughs> bad as, 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 as 
We make it. We can make it sound worse just by reading reading normal grammar, English <laughs> normal grammar. grammar. I, yeah. Me fail English. That's impossible. Yeah. Um. So I think the um the key to I don't know what the solution is. A way for the players to do something clever and go ah yes that's it. It is in delivery on the dungeon master game master's part. I have to deliver the you figured it out without saying I had no idea how. I just waited for you to come up with something clever. That has to do with the game master's skill as game master, in my opinion. Very rarely have I had somebody say to me, huh, we just came up with something clever. You just changed it. Matter of fact, I've never had anybody say that to me. They may have thought that, but I've never heard it. Um, But I think, and that's not, I'm trying not to pat myself on the back with that, but but what I'm saying is that if you deliver that approach correctly, Nobody knows. It's like the quantum ogre being, if you go, if this encounter is going to happen no matter where you go in the woods, no one knows that unless you tell them or you show them the notes or you give them the adventure or whatever it is, no one knows. And it doesn't do, in my opinion, it doesn't do much of anything unless you, at least to diminish the player's fun, unless you call it out as being, yeah, I just made it up and I just picked the first clever thing you said. Then they feel like that's cheap and stupid, and why'd you bother to waste my time with it? So it's all in the delivery, is what I would say to that. Yes. <sighs> Let's see here. <clears throat> Mr. Anyway, Eric, thank you very much for writing in. Much appreciated, man. Jim Fitzpatrick wrote in, gave us a topic suggestion as well. Hey, Brett and Sean, with the Avalon Kickstarter fulfillment coming up before too long, I think it would be awesome if you guys were considered doing an episode on how to consume setting material. Huh. I have setting books from D&D All Editions in my collection, Eberron, Dragonlance, etc., but I don't really know how to use them. I try to read them, and I literally fall asleep mid-Pantheon. <laughs> Other systems are the same. I love Numenera on a concept, but the Nth World is too thorough as they presented in the core book. Brent's, Brett, since you have insight into playing in Avalon for so long, what do you recommend people do to incorporate it into their games? Sean, since you play so many published modules and are pretty big Eberron buff, how did you go about that? How did you go at yep. that? How did you go at that? Yep. Jim. Jim. I think it's a, that's an interesting piece because a lot of times um, it's a Delta Green. So the first time I picked up the Delta Green books, the very the intro piece was fucking brilliant to me. It just hooked me and I was in. The first pieces I read of Vampire from Flavor Text and so forth that grabbed me and I was in. But understand. But how do you maintain that, or how do you go about consuming the material? Like, look, I really like this whole Eberron thing. Do I read the whole book? Do I read the starter set? What do I do? <laughs> it almost goes to that whole um, that IP consumption thing you and I have talked about in the past. So I have to read and know all the Forgotten Realms to really play in the realms. Yeah. How yeah. Do you, <laughs> but how do you break things down? I think that's a damn good idea, Mister Fitzpatrick. And I'm going to add that to the hopper. Very cool. Thank you, Jim. Yeah, thanks, Jim. Chris Steele writes on puzzles and TPKs. Daddy Chris Steele. Oh, on puzzles. There are two kinds of puzzles I think you were talking about. The first is a pure puzzle. Slide the blocks to get the crystal out or riddles. And the other is the figure it out encounters. The zombie master doesn't seem to be damaged by anything you do. I've found the pure puzzles are for the players, not the characters. Oh. I've also noticed that 
puzzles can break the connections between the character and the player. When you put a puzzle on the table, the characters fade into the background as the players try to solve the puzzle. Mm-hmm. That said, if I do present a puzzle, I'll give clues to how to solve it based on the skills of the characters. For example, if the barbarian rolls a perception check, I might say, you notice a worn path underneath that stone, which provides a hint to the players as to what piece may need to move next. This also allows for multiple skill checks to lead to the solution of the puzzle. This can remove any possible frustration for the players or the argument. Well, my character has a 20 int intelligence. He'd know how to solve this in 10 seconds. On the figured out type of encounter, I'm with Brett. I don't know the solution when I present the problem. What's the fun in that? However, I'll usually know one of the possible solutions. Blocking the moonlight will stop the zombie master's invulnerability. Just so I'm not throwing out impossible problems. But I can't remember a single time ever that the players actually used the solution I came up with. Why would they do that when they can come up with something much more convoluted? (laughs) Suddenly, the player decided they need to create a shower of holy water to sanctify the unholy land the zombie master is drawing its power from. Good times. (laughs) On TPKs. Depends on the game, but assuming D&D, TPKs are fine for one-shots con games with pre-gens or groups that like and understand there will be character turnover. But in a long campaign, they are a good way for DMs to lose players and probably friends. There is no worse way to end a year-long campaign than a meaningless, from the player's point of view, TPK. If they want to die to save the world, that's another story though, and an epic ending indeed. Chris. I like the way you broke that down, Chris, the two different types of puzzles, because I think that's what we were talking about. One was like a very physical puzzle insofar as it's a pure slide the box, a riddle type of thing. And the other is an encounter or how do I deal with X larger situation? That's a good way to look at it. And I I think what you're saying here also kind of underscores what we were talking about above is that it is um, it pulls it out, right? It breaks the connection between um, character and player. Some of those, the the more pure puzzles do. So good perspectives. Good perspectives as always. All right. What do we got next here? Good. Yeah. Thanks, Chris, from Tabletop Talk Top Top Pop Podcast. (laughs) Easy. (laughs) All right. So let's see. Harrigan emails us. Brett and Sean. It's my first time writing into the show. So hello. Thanks for keeping your podcast rolling. It's been a pleasure to listen to every week. I discovered the surprisingly large world of gaming podcasts back about six months ago, and gaming BS is one of my favorites. Oh, thanks, man. That's really nice. Uh, I'm on the road a lot for work, so I've uh, <laughs> torn through a good chunk of your backlog. Great stuff. My gaming sensibilities don't exactly line up with either of yours. Oh. <laughs> I'm into big narrative first games like Fate, uh, the OSR, and indie games like those produced by John Harper, but I still dig the topics and the conversations you two have around them. Cutting to the chase, here are a few things I'd love to hear your opinions on. Oh, boy, he's digging back. <clears throat> Let's see here. Good Lord. Way, way back. Episode 23, way back. The topic was, what have RPGs done for you? I hit 50 this year, and I've been doing a fair bit of reflecting on who I am and how I got where I am in life. Gaming has been a cornerstone for me in many ways. In 1983, I got exposed to AD&D by uh, playing Funkin' Hottie Peak in the seminal module Against the Giants one afternoon at a new friend's house, and I never looked back. 
I knew after the one session I wanted to run the game, not just playing it. So I dove right into the deep end, buying the DMG, the, P, the PHB, the Monster Manual, a bunch of other AD&D stuff. Skipping right over the basic expert because at the time, I didn't even know they existed. I had no guide in learning to play the game. I never played with the one kid again, and it basically plowed through all that Gygaxian pros to figure out the game. But like so many of us, I did, and I dragged my two best friends into it with me. For three years, I ran daily games, almost ran daily games, possibly averaging, averaging something like 12 to 16 hours a week. It was intense, but I believe now that taught me three things. The ability to take something complex and weird and unfamiliar and make sense of it. I boiled all of AD&D down into what was practical, what would work for my friends and I. I ignored weapon speed, encumbrance, the grappling rules, material components, a lot of um, other strange little side rules I've long since forgotten. It just focused on the stuff we all loved, exploration, the treasure tables, fighting awesome monsters. My takeaway here is that when I learned early on to boil complex things down to what matters and what works, I'm an IT management consultant today and in the water utility space. I use these skills every single day. You and me both, brother. <laughs> That's a big one. Next, running the game daily meant I didn't really have much time to prep for it. I basically set some giant arcs in motion and ran an emergent-style game set in Greyhawk. Though I didn't understand much what I was doing at the time. I really never never really used full modules, though I owned a lot of them. I would instead grab and use bits and pieces here and there. Again, I just found what worked. What this pace really taught me was to think on my feet to improv, to react in dynamic situations. Again, skills I use every day in my career, leading large workshops and meetings with people I haven't ever met and don't know well. I had a brother-in-law who was a relentless douche about the game, intimidating my friends and I by coming into the basement where we played to offer derisive remarks, making us feel like playing pretend was stupid and childish. I have some not-so-great memories of that, but eventually I came to realize his own insecurities were making him behave that way. He would, he would have been a douche whether I was playing D&D or, D &D or not. So I learned to push through the adversity, and, that's where, and uh, that is where people in life I could decide to minimize interactions with. That, too, has served me well. I said more on that subject than I intended to, so I'll keep the rest short and punchy. You've been talking about actual plays a bit lately. I think they're cool for learning new game systems and partly responsible for what looks like pretty decent growth in the industry right now. I don't usually watch or listen to APs uh, where I know the subject matter, but I do use them to check out how something I'm uh, new to plays. You mentioned recently that Fate Core and Fate Accelerated were quite different from one another. They really aren't. Accelerated is stripped down a bit, but the same fundamental concepts are presence, aspect, stunt, stress, failure at a cost, lots of player agency, and so on. I'll say this. Because of the way Fate Accelerated approaches work, old-time players <clears throat> often, has e often have an easier time learning Fate Core since it uses more familiar skills. For brand new people role-playing, though, Accelerated is great and often easier. Last item, die roll. I love this segment. I appreciate that you link everything in the show notes. Keep it up. It's a great way to connect with people with all the incredible products, tools, and ideas that are flowing around these days. Keep up the good work. Harrigan. Whew. That's a lot, man, but thank you very much. Very good perspectives. When you're looking back over the years, that's really good stuff. I Everything you say there, yeah, I mean, amen. I don't know what else to say to that. That's You're dead on. And when it comes to Fate Core and Fate Accelerated, truth be told, I'm... I'm repeating what I've been told by people who know both games. I do not know either of them well enough to speak with authority on either. So I I believe you as <laughs> I believe you, man. Um, so your perspective is, is just as valuable, if not more than mine. So anyhow, Sean, anything on that? No, thanks, Harrigan, for sharing that. Very stuff. nice. Good stuff. Thanks for joining Absolutely. us. Hello, BNS. 
I can't decide if I have a weak will or you guys are amazing salesmen. <laughs> Probably a bit of both. So I already bought dice from awesomedice.com. I bought a set of inspiration dice from them. You know, you buy five or six 20-sided dice that are all the same crazy colors so that you can give them out to your players when they get inspiration. It makes giving inspiration something That's special. That's a good idea, by the way. The owner of Awesome Dice wrote a note for support of support for you guys on the invoice. Oh, that's very nice. That. Hey, listener, if you haven't bought dice from Awesome Dice, you should. Well, there you go. Uh, a testimonial. So the other day, I'm listening to your podcast as I am walking my dog, and you guys are talking about this crazy slipcase set of the best campaign ever written. Massive night out for uh, a <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's how I affectionately call it as well. James, um, <laughs> that's what voice recognition thought the name was. It says Mask of Nyrolethotep. Uh, so I figure I'm retiring in about 10 years, and I want to run this for my friends when I retire and move back to Florida where they all live. I know it's a cliche retiring. It's I know it's cliche retiring to Florida. Look, man, my sister's got a condo there. She's not retired yet. All the nuts roll downhill. Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> Teasing you, man. Man, if I could go to if it's if Florida's got the only gaming retirement home, sign sign me up. In. However, I realize that in ten years from now, when I'm ready to play the game, I won't be able to find this nice box set as it will be very expensive and hard to find. So I went ahead and bought it now. Hey, another one. To sit on my shelf for 10 years, aging like a nice port. Nice. Might, I don't know about you, it might take me 10 years to read the thing. <laughs> uh, what else do I need to buy? Keep up with the rambling. Best regards, James. Well, James, since you did ask, you really do need to get the prop set. I mean, if you're going to wait 10 years and blow that bad boy out, I mean, go all out. That's just, I mean... No, I'm freely. No, we're freely spending your money, James. But I'm just saying, if you're gonna do it, go. Uh, if you're waiting that long to lay out a masterpiece, do it all in, man. <laughs> How much would you say you'd like to spend at this point? Yeah, go to uh, the pro yeah the prop set is like a, I think it was like a hundred bucks, a little over a hundred bucks. But it is a box full of tons of stuff, handouts. Full, um, full and it may be still around now noble knight that's what they do they sell and buy used games and you'd be surprised what you can find at their their place but you're right by then if they're not printing it or reprinting it that that, that price is gonna go skyrocketing that's actually the same uh, argument i used to my wife when i buy a bunch of stuff susan's like what'd you buy that for you're not gonna play that oh i will someday i'm holding yeah. in five years i'm gonna run it after the next two campaigns i'll run it at the it's not going to happen, but anyway, <laughs> thank you, James. Thank you very much. Yeah. I'll see if I can put a link in the show note for the, in the die roll for that, um, box set, do it prop set. Uh, you look for that while I read this one from Charles who comments about his foray into masks. 
Back in the day, like 1990, my gaming group ran through the entirety of massive Rhino Thotep. Holy crap, you made it. Um, those my words. <laughs> there were multiple near wipeouts, but some jackass always managed to get a, get a, <laughs> to get away to keep it going, usually by a failed sand roll before the fighting started, or by noping out at the first sign of the mythos. We kept a log of dead characters. The list filled from the, the front of a legal pad and continued on the second page. I want to say there were around forty dead PCs, but that number seems a little low. It was truly epic. Good times. Ah, <laughs> awesome, Charles. That is very cool. You know, that's still a low number when you're saving the world. It is a low number. I'll tell you what, though, when you, some of the things that make an adventure epic, like that, like, epic, wow, it's so, it's so memorable, is stuff like that. A list of dead characters. When I ran White Plume Mountain in my buddy's basement, he had a big whiteboard on the wall. Every time someone died, he went and drew a tombstone and put the name of the character next to it. And just went across the bottom of the whiteboard. It was just tons of tombstones and different designs. And we had a picture of it. It was just, that was a really cool thing. So any, even if it's not a prop chest, even if it's not like a cool candelabra or something was sitting there, that type of thing um, can make a campaign just feel really, really cool when you've got something like that. Because that list, that list is basically a prop for your game. And that's pretty fucking cool. Very cool, Charles. Over to you, Sean. Kill the party, kill the party, kill the fun. Nice. Kill a cheerleader, save the world. Is that what it says? Maybe. From Trevor Davis, Brett, Sean. I am enjoy I enjoy the podcast immensely. Thanks for the hard work to keep it going. I have to say right off uh, that I have not yet made it through all the back episodes. Oh, man, some of them are really terrible sounding. Uh, I may never get there. While I understand the logic, the go back and listen from episode one advice can be daunting for a guy who jumped in around episode 210. Still, I'm trying. Hey, man, it's all good if you don't. Yeah, don't. It's more, it's more of an old shtick. Uh, you don't, it's not a requirement. The audio quality may get better around 50. I don't know. I'd yeah, that's when Sean finally upped his game. Yeah, no. <laughs> it, the volume's still low. I don't know what the deal well, is. Well, I mean, we got better gear. We just we yeah. learned improved. All that. Anyway. Several of those old episodes have contributed to the D&D 5e campaign I'm running right now and mostly applied after an unintentional TPK. But I ended up using DM Fiat to unkill most of them. So I'm not sure if that counts as an actual TPK. Does your players know? (laughs) Yeah. If the players don't know that it was DM Fiat to save their asses, then it counts. For this group of friends, four of whom have never played an RPG before, it seemed the best way to keep interest in the game, in which case I would say that is a good call. Like, Oh, damn good call, man. Yeah, don't get new players into the game and then kill them all. They're, they're, that's not going to help the hobby much. <laughs> As I said at the beginning, uh, AJ's character died when I ran the game. AJ's like, oh, I die. All right, I'll just give me a new character. The other four kids, they, they, they should have died a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. But it's a birthday party. There's there's no point in wrecking everybody's evening by slaughtering them all. They've got only other, had two extra pe- I only had two extra pregens anyway. <laughs> they've got other lessons to learn later. In life, yes. Ultimately, it was death by evil dice. They reached a point where it was time to head into an orc tribe's hideout. They didn't even make it to the boss fight. The dice simply hated them and loved me. Crits followed from my dice like, well, shit. I can't think of anything that really flows. Maybe lava? Lava flows, but slowly, whatever, it sucked for them, and I wasn't using a screen, so I couldn't fudge them out of it. 
I thought about y'all episode on GM screens and the one on fudging rolls a good bit during that session. <laughs> yeah. So within a short period of time, all five of them were unconscious. Faces were pretty gloomy at the table. Fun had left the building. Immediate action to save the night led me to ask point blank, do you want your characters to live, die, or roll death saves? Two wanted to live, three wanted to roll for it. In Toto, only one actually died that night. Total. <laughs> in total, only one actually died that night. And maybe in Toto. Even Could be. Th- even though f- several folks I know don't approve of being a soft, squishy DM, I'm glad that I did this. Did it this way. The campaign took on new life. In one of your episodes, 53, the one on character death, I think, you talk about the need to make things riskier, bringing in more tension by having a real threat of character death. This almost TPK actually added that aspect rather than detracting from it and becoming the defining moment for the party. It happened in December or January and still offhand references to it are made every session. The characters not dying then turned into a gruesome torture session where one character lost an eye and another lost a couple points of con. Then we proceeded to a very puzzly jailbreak and the whole thing wound up being tons of fun. I learned several things. Lesson one for me was pretty obvious. Use a screen. I have tended to not use one because it divides the table. Because I didn't have one, I couldn't hide any of my crits once they hit the table. I seriously rolled about 12 or 15 of them <laughs> in just one night. Well, see, Sean and I have never never had dice that hot before, so I, I applaud you because that's amazing. And you have to use legitimate dice, Trevor. You can't go out buy the ones that are yeah, don't only buy the, yeah. all the 20s on every face. Yeah, you shouldn't use that die. That was oh, a bad I, idea. I'm sure. That, <laughs> man, you are something else. Remind me not to play in one of your games. Hell no. Oh, he doesn't <laughs> have the screen? Nope. I'm nope, out no of here. Sc- no screen? <laughs> Fuck that. We're done. <laughs> done. See ya. He'll gack us all. The other lessons came from talking with each of the players one-on-one later that week. It proved valuable to spend time to get their take and feedback. One of them was frustrated by the up and down in the combat. He got knocked out, got healed, then knocked out again, then healed again, etc. His order and initiative was right after the orcs, so he'd wake up just to get pounced in the face again. Punched in the face again. <laughs> I can't read. Um, we walked through it, and I said, hey, I heard about this game called Savage Worlds from a podcast I listened to. I bought the core rules because it sounds awesome. It uses a deck of cards. And that is how we started using the Savage Worlds initiative system. It has gone very well so far. Lots of fun, especially when a joker comes up. So for those of you not in the Savage Worlds world, if you flip cards, normal 52 deck of cards, you keep the joker, two jokers in it. If a joker comes up, you can inject yourself anywhere in the initiative. Yeah. Okay. I've known people to use the Savage Worlds initiative system in a lot of different game systems yeah. that have initiative just because of it's different and it's fun. So very cool. Good yeah. good call, man. Mix it up. There's no reason not to. And I think you get plus two on your rolls for that. I think so, yeah. For that round. Alrighty. One of these guys was okay with dying but wanted to die dramatically. No, no. You missed the whole paragraph. I missed the whole paragraph. <laughs> two of the guys were frustrated that when the dice failed them, They had no recourse. There was no option to say, this is do or die. I want to put everything on the line and try super hard. Same thing. Have you heard about Savage Worlds and Bennies? Now I bring the poker chips to the games and dish out inspiration like crazy. 
I also put two dealer buttons in front of the screen so that when they are out of inspiration, they can choose to use one of those. If mm. they do, then I get inspiration to use against them. Nice. Keeps things lively, gives them a bigger sense of risk and reward, and has upped the engagement on narrative role-playing significantly. One of the guys was okay with dying but wanted to die dramatically. He felt that the up and down as he hovered around zero hit points was really more pathetic than anything. He wanted harsher rules on what happens when you get to zero hit points. I took that back to the group and proposed some meat grinder style maiming rules, but the rest of the table balked at the idea. The discussion went to game balance, and I quoted Brett from his encounter building episode. Fuck balance. I'm pretty sure that's a direct quote. If it not, is. It's, it's close. <laughs> it we is. Di- we didn't it end is. up adding those rules. Still, their encounters are now are harder now than they would normally be, but the ben- Bennies and the chance for jokers, they feel that they have more agency. They also are more comfortable with the idea that their characters could die. The risk is real to them now, and that has helped me create more dramatic tension when the situation calls for it. Sometimes I wonder if I shouldn't have just let them all die there when we and we start with a new session zero, but really their love of the game and their engagement in it spiked significantly that night. I don't think starting from scratch would have had the same effect. Cheers, Trevor. Trevor, man, I'll tell you, I, I, I think you did the right thing there. I totally think you did. Yeah. Um, that, say, up, oh, you're all dead. We can start over. Well, okay, maybe next Saturday. Now you have people engaged. You, you went back. You saw it. You sought feedback. You brought some ideas back. One guy wants a thing. The rest of the table says, no, you don't put the rules in. Someone somewhere is going to listen to Sean reading that and say, well, why doesn't he just play Savage Worlds then? Why is he bothering to just import all that stuff and do all that? Somebody's going to say that. You can ignore that shit or choose to listen to it. Your call, dude. But from where I sit, what you're doing is working for you and your table. Keep doing it. There's no reason not to. I actually had my Middle Earth critical hit charts for AJ's game this last weekend. I forgot to mention that earlier. Anytime the fighter or the dwarf rolled an 18, 19, or 20, I let them roll on critical hits. We had critical failures, and we just used the charts for color and fun, and they thought it was great that there was a chart to go to. It's a totally different game system. Didn't fucking matter. Um, Trevor, man, I would play in your game any day. All, all jokes aside, dude, that sounds like fun. That sounds like you guys are having a hell of a good time. Players are getting are getting what they need, what they want. You're having a good time. You get to be creative. All the goodness is happening there. So, bravo, man. That is very good stuff. Very good stuff. Yeah, man. Good job, dude. All right. Well, I guess let's. I, well, so here's the deal, people. So we got uh, Sean. Sean's got a this guy Victor. He knows who happens to be like. Tecumel, Empire of the Petal Throne, Master, the guy who knows all. But Sean apparently told him, hey, Brett would like to talk to you. And this is what Brett looks like, and this is Brett, and this is how he acts. And, and now Victor won't talk to me. No, I'm kidding. Well, he, <laughs> he'll talk to you. But he just said he would only be on the show. If I wasn't. If Brett was not present. No, he, 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 didn't, he didn't say that. That's, no. not, that's not Victor. No, no. Victor's a nice guy. But just, he lives across the street from me. Yeah, and Sean's like, hey, I could get this interview done like at this wacky-ass time. Like, I can't make it. You got two mics. You know what you're doing. Off you go. So we have Victor Raymond, who is going to be, uh, that we interviewed. It's uh, a lot of it on Tecamel and Empire of the Petal Throne. Which means I have to listen to this episode no matter what, because I need to hear what Victor has to say. That's right. So here we go. Off to Victor and uh, 
Empire of the Petal Throne. He's like, get Victor to start talking about the um, OSR because of because he's like, we've talked about that and had opinions. Yeah, it's funny. Um, the OSR, the old school renaissance, the old school revival, the old school something. Um, I It really got started with a lot of people looking at third edition D&D, 3, 3.5, 3.14, 1.59, whatever. Yeah. Uh, and saying, wow, this has gone in a direction that isn't really what we remember as being fun or it doesn't seem fun to us now because we weren't around back then. Um, you know, very crunchy, very min-maxy, very kind of a, a game that's just mostly, I don't know how to put it. Uh, it, it was not a game that emphasized... Uh, exploration and risk and storytelling that was emerging from what people did as opposed to, I've got this story path and I want to do this, right? Uh, which maybe comes a little later. And you know, it's funny, the story games people, you know, Ron Edwards, The Forge, all those folks, you know, they were reacting to a similar set of circumstances. I wouldn't necessarily say the same set, but a similar set of circumstances. And they were saying, no, we want to play games that have strong narrative development and characters and things like that. And from the OSR perspective, that was kind of like, well, you, you do you, right? Not, not a matter of saying in opposition. Some people have wanted to say the OSR was in opposition to story games. Other people want to say, no, we're we're all now closely together. And no, they're just different reactions to different things. Uh, and trying to make them more oppositional or more alike kind of misses the point. Hmm. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the idea was mostly, hey, all those things that people talked about about earlier games as being kind of like, well, those were flaws. People in the OSR kind of looked at it and said, well, yeah, you can think that. That doesn't mean you're right. You know, and a lot of it having to do with uh, wanting to play games that were. I, I would say simpler. I don't mean simpler in terms of necessarily outcomes, but in terms of mechanics that were loose enough. And this is, I think, if there was a point to the OSR, if there was a real point to the OSR, most anybody involved in the OSR, the the sort of spiritual home of it is being a shade tree mechanic to work on the car that you brought in. Right. Mm -hmm. Any game is a game that you can bring in and you want to be able to get under the hood and see what's going on. And, you know, if you don't like what you find there, you replace it with something else. And that meant games that weren't so tightly written. And let's face it, three, three point five Pathfinder. They're like a Swiss watch. Yeah, just consider for a moment that the idea of a Swiss watch, you look at it. It's got that amazing mechanical escapement. It's got all this stuff going on. You look at it, and it does so many things so well. But if you crack that bezel and you dive in, you're never getting it back together. 
And metaphorically speaking, that that's kind of how it is. I mean, and and that's not to say that Pathfinder and those games aren't fun. I have friends that play them and think they're great. One of my best friends back in Iowa plays Pathfinder, and he attributes it to me encouraging him, go, go forth, play the game you want to play, have fun. Yeah. And that's, that's the way it should be. Uh, the OSR was largely started, I think, around the idea and, you know, trying to talk about it in anything more than sort of broad movements is really hard uh, because everybody went off and did their own thing. Right. Right. Okay. But but that was the, uh, the that was the the zeitgeist. Do your own thing. You know, you want to change things up. You want to have different races. You want to go and uh, uh, have a whole different way of approaching combat. Sure. Do it. Understand that not everything's going to work. You might fix something worse than it was before. But if you're having fun with it, that's cool. Very that's, much. That's the mantra, right? A lot yeah. Of, you know, as long as, you know, whether you're doing it, it's it's just, as long as you're having fun. Yeah. Well, and that's all that matters. And also, on some level, the whole notion would be that you're trying to give some creative control back to the referee over the rules. And I think that's where people sometimes miss the point about the OSR. They think, oh, my God, you're taking all this power away from players. And the answer is no. If anything, we're trying to empower players to do their own thing, you know. Uh, but but the referee, the, the game master, he's got narrative control. He's going to do bad things to the players. Well, what did you sign up for in the first place? I mean, this is a session zero question, you know. If you start off by saying, hey, this is a game that involves exploration and there's a lot of risk, don't get too attached to your initial character because, hey, death comes easy here. Play accordingly. Uh, and as long as everybody sitting down at the table understands that, okay. You know, the other piece of it is also to turn around and say something like, I don't have a story for you. That's another aspect of the OSR. I don't have a story for you. The story happens as a result of things you do, Mr. Mm -hmm. Player, Ms. Player. Uh, you you know, what you collectively do as a party, that's the story, you know. So if you're looking, you know, and for a lot of people who might be used to, you know, computer games where there's a mainline quest, you know, I've been playing Skyrim and I, I went back recently and I played a little bit of Morrowind and went, wow, this game is good, but it's long in tooth, right? Um, a lot of people used to that kind of game, particularly where the, you know, the main quest comes back and reminds you, this is what you're here for, would probably find an OSR game to be kind of like, what am I supposed to do? And the meta and and a somewhat metaphysical question of, well, what do you want to do, is one that they're not used to having asked. Yeah. So, yeah, I. Um. I I also say that one of the biggest mistakes, one of the biggest problems we've ended up having with the OSR over the past decade has been, uh, and and I include myself in this. Right. Mm -hmm. As I'm talking, uh, if anybody comes along and tells you, I will now reveal to you the true OSR, you know, it's like the Buddha. You meet the Buddha in the road, kill him. He's not the real Buddha. You know, that's 
Well, let's now that's inter- interesting you brought up that because Oh, is there anyone in mind you're thinking of? Well, I think I have a couple people that I could probably sure. point to. Uh, no, I don't think so. But I think that's a point to be made because of today's gatekeepers. Mm, yeah. As far as gatekeeping is concerned, um I want to want to say um there are people out there who are influential. And some of them are creative and have done some really cool stuff. But come on, people. Everybody's human. And there are people out there who you probably wouldn't game with at your table. You can respect their work, uh, but they may not be the sort of person or the sort of the game they like isn't the game you like. That's fine. Here's a big secret. No one's forcing you to play with them, right? There's there's folks in the OSR who do some really seriously gonzo stuff. Um, oh, who am I thinking of? Uh, Jason Schultes, for example. Oh, sure. Yeah. Amazing. Wonderful. I mean, in fact, the whole Hydra Collective, big shout out to the Hydra Collective guys. They do amazing stuff. And I really like what they've done. It's creative. It just makes me think, and and I love it. I don't know if I would ever play a lot of it, but if they're playing and they're having fun and their players are are going to town on it and they're sharing that with others and other people are having fun, two thumbs up. Yeah. You know, this is, you know, it, it's, it's find the thing you like, play that. I, I used to be more evangelical about some of this stuff and say, no, you should do this. And these days my, my answer is like, you know what? And this goes for any kind of gaming, OSR, story games, fifth edition, whatever, Pathfinder. It'd be find the game you like to play. Find the people you like to play with. There you go. It's pretty easy, right? Yeah. And and if you don't do that, if you want to, I mean, it's, it's okay to have preferences. It's okay to say, I really like this kind of game, or I think that kind of gaming is really not what I like. But if you want to talk about things like, you know, a priori, this game is better, I'll be kind of like, uh, yeah. Yeah, you go have fun. Yeah, there's a lot of opinions. There's a lot of those. There's uh, sure. That games. Well, I can talk about games being better edited, better presented for what they are. I mean, that's one of the things about taking all these games from the past and reviving them, right? You know, perhaps reanimating them, you know, zombie games, right? Uh, like, here's here's one, Chivalry and Sorcery. All who, right. was, who published that? That was published by Fantasy Games Unlimited. Uh, it was written by uh, Ed Symbolist and Wilf Backhouse, and it appeared in 1977, this... Uh, Eight and a half by eleven size paperback book with a with a red cover, uh, with a knight charging a dragon uh, as the art on the cover, and I played that back in the day when I was in high school, and I thought it was the greatest thing ever. It's oh, it's so many cool things, knighthood, and uh, the most arc. Uh, I'm the most arcane magic system you can possibly find. And I mean it exactly that way. They had like 17 different magic systems and all this cool stuff. And I went back to it recently and cracked the covers and looked at it again. I said, oh, this is a hot mess. 
Now, was that the first game you played? No, Robo? no, no. The first the first game I ended up playing was D and D with my high school buddies. Gotcha. And I got my start in 1975. Yeah, that was about right. And I wasn't part of that first year of discovery of D&D, but I grew up in the Twin Cities. And so pretty much everybody I gamed with, I was about one away from various people who were doing that you know, initial bout of gaming and coming out of war gaming and miniatures games and now doing this weird thing called fantasy role playing. Um, and out of that, I got to know people like professor M.A.R. Barker and Dave Arneson and Dave McGarry and, oh God, uh, the list goes on. Right. Yep. And, uh, I, I felt like I was really lucky. I mean, it, I think I think one of the biggest differences that I encountered was that having grown up in the Twin Cities, I was used to there always being a gaming club. In fact, there was the Conflict Simulation Association on Tuesday nights at the University of Minnesota. There was Friday night games at... Uh, the sixth precinct game club, uh, which the story on that's too long, but basically there was a precinct in South Minneapolis that had community policing and they had a community room and everyone said, Hey, look, it's an unused space. Let's do some gaming. And the police were like, sure, you know, whatever. We, we never saw them. They never, I mean, they kind of went tripping right on by and we were off their community room. Um, Saturday, uh, there was gaming at the University of Minnesota and at the Littleton Soldier Shop. Sunday, there was gaming back at the 6th Precinct. I mean, pretty much four or five days a week, you could find a game going on somewhere. And that was not just role-playing, but there was miniatures games, there was board games, all that. And that combined with having a dedicated game store, uh, meant that I was really lucky. I mean, I hear about stories about people having to travel long distances uphill both ways, you know, to get their, you know, get their gaming stuff. And I'm kind of like, I'm really sorry. I had it kind of easy. You know, that was fun though. And we've got a pretty good in Madison now, too. Madison is amazing. Uh, Madison having 10 game stores. It's not that high, is it? Okay. Let's, let's, oh, let's, man. let's I don't walk know. through the you, list. I suppose. Uh, I just sent out a mailing to a bunch of them for the game club at Madison College. Maybe there's teach. one I'm not aware of. Okay. So, so let's start off. Uh, there's A New Hope, uh, Power Nine, and um, Netherworld. A New Hope, I don't know. I thought Netherworld, is there, are they still around? Yeah, Netherworld is in the basement of Power 9. Oh, jeez, okay. <laughs> so they're not in their original location, no, that's no, my why. No, no okay. but those are those are the three downtown. Okay, yep. Okay, there's Pegasus and Mox Mania. Yep. Okay, so we're up to five. Sure. There's, uh, let's see here, there's also um, Noble Knight, we're up to six. Uh... There's I'm Bored, and that's seven. If you want to count two locations, that makes eight, but let's call it seven. Let's be conservative here. <laughs> then there's Misty Mountain. Yep. We're up to eight. Game Crafter. Do, do they, do they, oh, I guess they do sell. They do sell stuff. Retail? 
Um, I think you can mail order. I think, okay. I, okay. But they're here. All right, fine. Right? Fair. Okay. Yeah. And then, uh, let's see here. Games Workshop. Games Workshop 10. Um, if you want to go out to Mount Horeb, that means we're still, we still have the last square, 11. So do they have a retail yeah. outlet in Mount yeah, Horeb? Okay. Yeah. I didn't know if, the, um, the duo, the dynamic duo had that, that out there. And then of course you throw in a distributor. A distributor. And then there's also a couple of game stores in the malls, East Town and West Town Mall. Sure. Okay. okay. All right. Okay. <laughs> Fine, Victor. You know. We're talking to Victor, Dr. Victor Raymond. Oh, gosh. Dr. Victor Raymond, who is the organizer of Madison Traditional Gaming and the president of the Tecumel. Am I saying that correctly? Tecumel? Tecumel. Tecumel. Foundation, yes. Yeah. uh, It was really weird for me. I got here in 2009 after graduating with my little, you know, piece of sheepskin. Um and I arrived in Madison to find out that the game club that my friends had told me about and had said, it's so wonderful, it's been around for decades, it was a, uh, just a, it had a profound effect on their lives, and it was really a big part of Madisonian culture. The Dungeon Masters Association, it had been in existence for 30 years, had folded six months before I got here. You weren't here to save them. I, I was, I will admit, pissed. And I was, <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I was kind of going, what's going on around here? That's how, when I, I think that was one of the times when I met you originally. Yeah. And I kind of looked around and like there was organized, I think there was uh, Warhammer stuff that was going on, magic uh, but this was right before fourth edition D and D had come out, so we were running on the fumes of third edition, and I think Pathfinder might have been around for a little bit at that point. Um, and I so I said, "Well, heck, let's get some people together and start gaming." And we started our first meetup had three people, me and two other people. Um, and then the first game, which I started at Misty Mountain, interestingly enough, on Tuesday nights, was me and one other guy. And we were playing Labyrinth Horde, a, a uh, classic retro clone of um, BXD&D. And I started with me and one other fellow, and we went for, well... I mean, it's been just about 10 years, and we found a home about six years ago, maybe seven, at Pegasus Games, and we had a table of people, then we had two games going, then we had four games going, then we had eight games going, and now we're out at uh, Noble Night on Tuesday nights, and we have, I'd say our average attendance is about 50 people, and we have about eight different campaigns going. And at that number looks like it's going to keep going up. It's kind of scary. Now, you forgot the days in the libraries. Oh, my goodness, you're right. Um, That's like, that was like not a short amount of time either. I think it was like a year or three several, in, in several the library. Yeah. yeah, we bounced around from different libraries. We still do those, third Saturday of the month. Uh, the problem we ran into with the library uh, situation problem was simply that trying to reserve a lot of space for successive 
weeks at the Madison Library System was difficult, and quite rightly so. The, the, the library system likes to make sure that everyone's got access. And if a group came in and took over all their meeting space, they'd be kind of like, uh, you're hogging, you're hogging, shouldn't do that. Uh, but we bounced around from library to library, but now our home for that is uh, Hawthorne Branch Library. So we've got um, the southwest side of Madison and kind of the northeast side of Madison covered uh, the Hawthorne Library on the third Saturday of each month, and we do one-shots for that. Uh, oddly enough, that's a little bit more quiescent. We haven't had as many people recently, but I, you know, it comes and goes. So let's talk a little bit about Empire of the Petal Throne. Yes. Tecumel, the world of Tecumel. Yeah. Creation of Professor M. A. R. Barker. If you've never encountered Tecumel before, you've stumbled upon an entire world, the equal of Tolkien's Middle Earth in detail and wonder, thousands of years of history, entire languages, rich cultures, unique creatures, bloody conflicts, and fascinating mysteries. That's from Tecumel.com. Yep, that's fair. Also known as the Forgotten Tolkien. Sure. <clears throat> uh, Professor Barker had been a science fiction fan from when he was very young. He'd been interested in languages from when he was very young. Uh, he went to Berkeley for graduate school in linguistics, uh, got a Fulbright scholarship, one of the first Fulbrights, to go to India and while he was there, he ended up converting to Islam. Uh, uh, but you almost read his like you just almost recited his entire Wikipedia page. Oh well. <laughs> See, for me, I was uh, I was a player in in Phil's group. You know, the M A R Barker. Uh, he was born originally Philip Barker, uh, you know, the later name after conversion, Muhammad Abdelrahman Barker. Uh, he almost invariably said to people after that, call me Phil. Did he really? <laughs> yes. Huh. Yeah. And um, as a creation, uh, Phil started on this when he was very young. And he worked on it. And there's signs that he had done some kind of proto-role-playing gaming with it in the 1950s when he was in graduate school. And which explains a thing that comes along later. Because uh, Michael Mornard, who is a original player in Greyhawk, friend of Gary Gygax, friend of mine... Uh, he arrived in September of 1973 at the University of Minnesota from Lake Geneva, Wisconsin, along with a little introductory letter to Dave Arneson from Gary. And uh, Michael uh, was on an Air Force ROTC scholarship, and he introduced Dungeons & Dragons to the gamers at the university and the gaming club there, the Conflict Simulation Association, had as its faculty advisor one M.A.R. Barker. 
Right. So Phil shows up to gaming uh, and Michael is running D&D. And Phil looks at this and says, well, this is all very well and good. Where's the world? You know, because he was used to thinking that way, you know, and Michael and the other people who'd been playing D&D, you know, they had ideas. They had their inspirations, Hyboria, um, various other, you know, fantasy writers, Jack Vance, you know, Howard, was it Robert E. Howard? All that. And Tolkien. So Phil took D&D, looked at it and said, huh, okay. I just happened to have this world over here. <laughs> He'd been working on languages for it for a couple of decades at that point. And he wrote up the game over spring break and presented it back to the gamers in early 1974. Uh, to uh, their uh, delight and consternation and awe because it was this complete game set with a complete background and world. I, I think at this point it's the, it was the first role-playing, fantasy role-playing game that had a complete world attached to it. I mean, you could make a claim that Metamorphosis Alpha had a complete setting, the Starship Warden, but um, yeah, Tecamel is this complete package setting right there. And he used the D&D rules at that time, correct? Well, yeah, um, if you look at the original, uh, what we call the Mimeo EPT rules, the playtest rules that he came up with, uh, yeah, you can see the influence of original D&D, but it's not the same game. Uh, there, are, there are differences. Uh, stats are rolled using percentile dice. There's different, there's different characteristics. There's strength, intelligence, constitution, but then you have psychic ability and then dexterity and then comeliness. Not how impressive you are, how good you look, right? Right. Okay. And the the thing that ended up happening after that was that uh, Tecumel was kind of a, I have to admit it, it was kind of a hard sell. It was this glorious, exotic world that is inspired by uh, the Thousand and One Nights, by Mayan and Incan and Aztec civilizations, by India and languages like Arabic. And uh, and for gamers of the time, that was pretty exotic. By today's standards, I think a lot of gamers would just pick it up and go because, you know, we've seen weird stuff by now. Uh, but back then it was like, wow, this is a lot of game and setting to get my arms around. Um, and I think that that's along with a number of other things. One of the reasons why the game remained very much a niche interest for a very long time. And by the, I had a short period of time that I was gaming with professor Barker in the late seventies. And then I picked up it again after I graduated from college Oh, well, before I graduated, but you know, when I was getting done, that would have been in the mid-80s. And then for the next 20 years, 20, 25 years, I played with Professor Barker and his group. But that was a weird position to be in, to be you know, in the game, you know, the, the regular game session of the creator. Uh, and during that time, Professor Barker saw successive editions of different games for Tecamel. Uh, Swords and Glory, Gardasial. Uh, others that came on down the line later. Uh, and each one of these, I think, 
the the heartbreaking side of it was that if they were all being done today, the tools that we have now, print on demand, web pages to advertise, easy access for fans to find one another, probably would have taken off. But back in the day, we're talking about a a little game company for a little niche of a slightly bigger niche of a small pond of a hobby. So now, now TSR published that. Yes. The original game empire of the pedal throne was published 1975 by, uh, TSR hobbies. Yes. And then he took it back. Yeah. Uh, actually it went from there to game science. So for a little while, uh, our Colonel, Lou Zaki. That's right. Yes. Uh, if you don't know who Colonel Lou is, game science, if you go to Gen Con or a convention that he's at, yep. he does the precision, right? The precision dice? The is that high it? impact. High impact. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And he'll give you the speech on why the way they're made mm-hmm. is the genuine balance of each die. Um, sure. Something to that effect. They're pretty. It's <laughs> very edgy. Oh, absolutely. If you do not want rounded dice. Oh, yeah. No. Yeah. This actually there there is a good case to be made that they are more genuinely random. I mean, I've right. I've done my time teaching and learning about stats, so I can I can tell you with fair assurance they are more random than some of the things that we get today. Uh yeah, back in the day, oh my goodness, talking about dice. I, and I know that people say, yeah, 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 I keep talking old-timer. But, you know, Foresighters used to have points to them. Those things were caltrops. Uh, and this whole thing, a tens, the tens, there were no such things as tensiders. Why, you had to take your D20 home with you, and you had to paint the one set of numbers from zero to nine. And that was how you knew, right? Uh, it's all silly. Yeah. But... Game Science took over. Game Science took it over, uh, published it for a little while. Then uh, Tadashi Ehara from Different Worlds Publications did it for a little bit. And in all these cases, I think the biggest mismatch was here's a world that has so much to it. And if you're a little game company and you're trying to sell products for a world that nobody knows about and they say to you oh yes and there's five army lists and there's language books and oh by the way did we tell you about the religions and then there's this other stuff and you know if you're a game publisher you want to say that's all well and good but where are the adventures man you know what is it that people would buy into and that's the thing we're we're kind of getting at now with the foundation we want to make the old material available but through people like jeff d uh, and uh, John Till. Jeff is working on, uh, well, he's published Baythorn and has published some adventures for it. So it's a new game for Tecumel. The way we think of it is that Tecumel is this amazing world. There's more than enough room for different games to express it. That's what people do anyway. When we look at how fans have played the game, they love the world so much, but they take the rules that they like and they adapt the rules to fit the setting. And so John, John Till is working on Fate of Tecumel. Oh, really? Oh, fate, yes. A Fate adaptation. A, fa- a Fate adaptation. Huh. And it's really cool. He's doing some very, very cool things with it. He wants the stats for the game to be, the characteristics to be based around the 
notion in the game, in the setting of how Soliani, the people of the Empire of the Petal Throne, how they conceptualize the self. And he wants that to be part of how people's characters get built. So he's going deep. He's he's having a great time with it. And we're looking forward to seeing his first adventure and the rules that will go along with it. So. Now, does the foundation govern the rights? Yes. Okay. So yeah. you folks, because there's, what, seven people on that board? It's hard to remember. Okay. Wait, no, that's not true. I know exactly. I know you are. do. Uh uh, there are five of us that are on the board of directors, but then we have probably another 10 people past that who are, um, you know, dedicated volunteers and who are helping out in terms of making it all happen. And so you approve kind of the rights and the usages right. of Professor Barker's work, basically. Yeah. The way we think of it is that the, the foundation is responsible for the um, preservation and promotion of Professor Barker's creative legacy, the world of Tecamel. And the foundation uh, reproduces the old material, the legacy materials, and as well as also anything that is written by Professor Barker. And there's a lot of stuff that hasn't seen the light of day. Okay, so I want to stop you just for a second there. Sure. Because one of the times that I had seen you at GaryCon... Was with you and who else was it? I know who it was. His name escapes me. But mm-hmm. you guys had old computers strewn about five tables that you were recovering data off of. Oh. And at the time, oh, yeah. I thought it was a lot of Professor Barker's work, like on five and a quarter inch floppy disk and three and a half inch floppies. Is that, was that right? Was, were you trying to recover some of that? Yeah, that was some of what was going on. Um, or was that something completely different? No. Well, what you have described matches at least one set of circumstances. There might be two. But I think it was Adam. Thor- was it Adam? Thor- it was Adam Thornton. Thornton. Yes. yes. Yep. Adam, who's an amazing guy and has done a lot for us. Um, we, let me put it this way. Professor Barker, being a linguist, was always looking for better ways to uh, do his work. Computers, particularly personal computers, had such promise from the very beginning. And so his first computer after uh, he moved on from his IBM Selectrics was an Apple IIc, if anybody remembers what those were. Mm-hmm. And then from there went on to buy Macintoshes. And his general practice was... To treat each Macintosh as the successor uh, to the previous one, and he would just simply image the hard disk off of one onto the next. So by the time we were done, by you know when Professor Barker uh, was on his last computer, it was kind of a a matryoshka doll. You know, mm. here's we have here's a hard disk inside a hard disk inside a hard disk inside a hard disk, and each one of them had. Essentially, Professor Barker's work for that you know period of time that he owned it, and we're we're mining that, and it just takes time. So you're still working on it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's crazy. That's yeah. a lot. Professor Barker was a very prolific person, mind you. What he worked on was largely what he wanted to work on, which was not necessarily the same as I will now produce this series of adventures that will explain my world. It's like, no, 
fact, actually, the way that Professor Barker thought of it was, well, I'll, I'll quote my friend James Maloshevsky. James had been playing Tecumel on his own for a little while, and he called up Professor Barker, got in touch with Professor Barker, this was a long time ago, and asked him about a particular place. I'm trying to remember what it was. I don't think James remembers now. And Professor Barker's answer at the time was, well, I don't know. I haven't been there. Hmm. And James was profoundly confused by this answer. You know, he was in, in, in some ways, you know, almost irritated. You know, it's kind of like, what do you mean you don't know? It's your world. And the truth of it was that Professor Barker used his games as a way to explore his own world. And anybody who played Tecumel on their own and found something meaningful to it and shared it with Professor Barker, there was a decent chance Professor Barker would, you know, go along with that. You know, there's one example that gets talked about a lot of this. There's a fellow who was running Tecumel and he wrote to Professor Barker and said, oh, my players were on this adventure. They encountered this noble woman uh, and who told him these things. And, you know, I just wanted to know if you knew anything more uh, ab about her. Right. And it wasn't like, you know, this was a character named anywhere. This was a character that 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 referee, that game master had come up with himself, but he was going to fill and sort of like, well, you know, you know, the world, who is this person? And professor Barker's answer was, oh yes, I know exactly who she is. She owns a Ruby mine up in the mountains here, over here, I'll show you on the map and gave some insight and details. And the referee was like, that's amazing. I, I'm going to use that in my game and went off and did that. If only we could have packaged, a, you know, Professor Barker in every box, you know, people would have been like, yes, exactly. Uh, and that's, I think, part of the appeal is that when people really get into it, they really do find that it's, there's a lot there, that the allure is in just how fascinatingly deep the setting really is. And Professor Barker's advice on that was always the same. He said, I have given you my Tecumel. Now go make it your Tecumel. And the best way to do that is for you to run games because that way you'll find out what's really going on, what it's really like. Uh, and so... Professor Barker was always puzzled by people who would write to him and say, I need to know more about, could you tell me about the trees along the southern coast of the Chanayaga Deeps? And are they the same sort of trees that you find over on the eastern coast of Livianu? And, you know, and Professor Barker's answer, I mean, now, now we can understand the answer. I don't know. I haven't been there. Gotcha. Yeah. So now... What is the difference between, because we've mentioned Tecumel quite a bit, and then there's Empire of the Petal Throne. Empire of the Petal Throne was the original game published by TSR. Uh, it is now in re-release. It's been republished 
foundations released it as as recently as 2017. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, uh, the difference between the two is merely that Empire of the Petal Throne is a very OSR rules light D and D esque approach to playing Tacamel. Baythorm is a more recent. Uh, attempt with a different rule set that works really well. Fate of Tecumel will be another interpretation. There are all ways that people have done it. And the number of fan adaptations to different rules. RuneQuest. Sandy Peterson, I think, was the one who did the original fan adaptation of uh, the RuneQuest rules to Tecumel. And there are others. You know, so... The, the difference between EPT and Tecumel is Tecumel is the setting. EPT is one way to get there. So what are some of the rules differences? So if somebody picked it up that could, because we often talk about in role-playing games, there's the rules and then there's the setting and sometimes they're melded together. Right. Uh, some of the differences, uh, one of the ways in which the rules are different is that, uh, Empire of the Petal Throne has a skill system, which was not something that anyone I think would have anticipated from original D and D kind of anticipates and predates non-weapon proficiencies for a D and D, uh, but they don't work the same way. Uh, the magic system works a little different in that as priests and magic users progress, they get different abilities, which are different spells and spell-like um, disciplines. Uh, but then they can acquire bonus spells, which are divided out into three tiers. But it's really kind of a roll of the dice if you get any of them at all. Uh, and so... The magic use and the magic system operate differently because you also don't just cast a spell. You have to see if you're successful casting it. There's a chance you might fail, right? Um, and then past that, uh, the magic items are different. There are no wands. There are no staves. There are amulets. Uh, there are these things called eyes, which are small technological devices, which are not unlike wands, mechanically speaking. They have a certain number of charges. When they run out of charges, that's it. Uh, though there is a way, you know, if you have the right one, you can recharge the eyes. Um, and then there's books, and the books are written in different languages. And so language is a powerful part of the setting. And that... That is something that you can pay a little bit of attention to, and that's just fine. Or if you want to go deep, you can do that too. What I tell people these days, when if somebody were to ask me, so what do you need to, to play Tecumel? I'd say you need a set of rules that you like that gives you a chance to run Tecumel, and you should go and run it. You know, there's a lot of fans out there who will say, no, you need the Tecumel source book and you need the languages and you need the book of Eben bindings for demonology and all of this stuff. And it's like, that's all great. But those are like splat books, man. Those are that's like you don't need that. You know, uh, you know, it's funny. Funny you bring that up 
Victor, because we had a listener of our show. We mentioned getting you on and talking about this. And he literally says, and I quote, I think it's pretty common for people to be a little mystified and totally overwhelmed when they first have a look at Empire of the Petal Throne. I know I was. Is there a friendly place to start for folks with an interest in this early game setting? And that's by that's from Ray Otis. Oh, right. Yeah. Do you sure. know Ray? Have you met Ray? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah. Uh, I should thank Ray for coming up with that question. It's great. Um, yeah. I would say, actually, um, Empire of the Petal Throne works just fine. Uh, I think uh, Baythorn, if you wanted something a little bit different and more modern in feel and a little you know crunchier in a different way, it works just fine. Um, I think what most people get hung up on is they're worried if they're doing it wrong. Oh my God, I'm doing it wrong. It seems like a theme in RPGs a lot when when people get hung up on, like you mentioned earlier, when you run things by designers, mm-hmm. setting publishers, like, am I doing this right? Or how do I handle this when, you know, folks like you and I would just say, yeah, whatever, do, do your thing. There is no wrong way. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I. Uh, you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Uh, I th- I th- understand the impulse in that. I think the, the the sort of on the moment thing that that feels more real. I don't want to dismiss this completely because there's sure. there's a real aspect to this, which actually has to do with the oh, I've been running it this way, and now I've gotten some new information, and now what do I do? Uh. And I think the answer is you roll with it. You know, if you can use that information or not, you can run your game as it is or not, you know. Um, and I think particularly with a with a, a setting that is as deep and as rich as Tecumel, people are like, oh, my God, you know, what if I present something uh, that that isn't completely right? You know, so many things. Uh, about Tecumel, people think there's the one answer for. And particularly when Professor Barker was alive, uh, and certainly since then, is that that's just not the case. Tecumel's like the real world. You know, people ask questions like, you know, uh, so what is the stance of... Uh, the temple of Lord Karakan towards the temple of Lord Vimukla. And fans would get just mightily irritated. I mean, Phil would hand me these questions and say, hey, Victor, I don't have time for this. Go go write an answer to this guy. You know this stuff. And I would write back, well, it, it depends. I mean, who are you talking about? This this is a temple that's like a massive bureaucracy and you know, the you know, if you're in the in the capital in Beisu, well, you know, the people there get along, but if you're in Chakala, maybe they don't. And, you know, and so there you know, there's some doctrinal, you know, approaches, but just like anything else, eh, depends on who you talk to. And people are like, no, I want to know the real, the inside truth. What is the nature of Lord Kasarl, the doomed prince of the Blue Room? Is he really imprisoned or what's really going on? And if you look at him and say, well, I don't know. What if you found out? They're just like, ah! 
And I wouldn't say that Professor Barker would smile at this, but uh, there were some things where trying to look for the the one true answer was that was a wild goose chase, you know. So if you found if you're running the game that somehow you might have been doing it wrong, well, you can say, well, that's how they were doing it there. You know, we're now here; they do it differently here, or that was then, this is now. Ultimately, forget about it. Don't worry about it. Play the game. Have fun. The omnipotent Azure Legion isn't going to come trooping around by your house and say, you know, your Soliani is atrocious. We're hauling you away. It's not happening. Go have fun. It's what type of feel. And that's maybe a very weird question to ask. Like, But, you know, you've played a lot of games you played traveler absolutely call cthulhu Mm -hmm. you've played a lot of the retro clones ad and d white box all of it right some exude a certain feel whether it's derived from the setting or the rules or the combination of both sure you know maybe it's how the narrative is handled within the game, mm-hmm. who has control of the narrative. Mm-hmm. You know, the setting could be, I don't know, medieval Europe, which sure. is not wholly dissimilar from a lot of fantasy games out there. Sure. How how does Tecamel and Empire of the Petal Throne, what is that? Because there's a lot of people that have, nev- have not been exposed to this game at all. The feel of it, there's two answers to that question. Okay. The the first answer, which is the simple answer, is it's a sword and planet setting. It's science fantasy. It's way post-apocalyptic. You know, ancient civilization that was far in our future, you know, I- impossibly powerful technologically speaking, settles this planet uh, as part of a larger human interstellar empire. And then for reasons unknown, Tecumel and its star system get sucked into their own pocket dimension. And civilization slowly grinds to a halt. The high interstellar culture slowly goes away as people realize they can't get out. And from there... It progresses forward as the cycles of history, as civilizations and empires rise and then fall and then rise and fall. And in the present day of the game, well, it's an unimaginable future past our future, right? It's tens of thousands of years away. And in that time, there's been contact with gods. There's ancient leftover technology. The the technological level is much more like that of ancient societies here on earth. Uh, there's, uh, cunning sorcerers. There are mighty warriors and soldiers, uh, generals that command legions as well as also, uh, priests and bureaucrats and the, the empire, uh, the Empire's loyal servants, as well as also those who have 
been traitors to the empire, right? Okay. So all of that's there. And the feel of it is supposed to be, yes, yeah, like I said, sword and planet. You are a nobody. You've arrived here in the city of Dracala. Now make something of yourself. Become a somebody. And who knows? Perhaps you can become the next mighty general of the empire, the next great sorcerer of the temples. It's, you know, it's in that, that Bildungsroman feel of original D&D. You're a nobody, become somebody. That's pretty easy there. Okay. I said that was a simple answer. Uh, the more complex answer is it's actually whatever you want to make of it. You want to run a pirate game? Sure. You can do that. You can uh, run smuggling ships and piracy all through the Chanayaga Deeps. You want to run a Three Musketeers game where you're all part of you know the the legions and the king's guard, as it were, you know, going off to defeat the you know the cardinal's guard. Sure, you can do that too. You can translate that over. You want to run some sort of deep uh, mystery, uh, you know, secret within secret within secret kind of Call of Cthulhu game. Sure. All of those things are possible. And I think the reason why all of those things are possible is because Tecumel is was, was and is so richly detailed by Professor Barker that you can find all of that there. And the motivations of everybody there are just the same as anywhere else. You've got people who are acting virtuously, other people who are motivated by vice and corruption. You've got still others that are mild and diffident and yet others who are, you know, motivated by who knows what, right? But it's it's not any different. I think people sometimes think is it's just too alien. It's like, nope, nope, not at all. Go there, you will find everybody like here. They're just dealing with a world that's very different from ours. Now Professor Barker wrote some novels. Yes. Relatively late considering he started so early, you know, creating. Yes. Uh, he started on a Tecumel novel in the 1950s, but didn't finish it. It's very different. We, we have the manuscript. We're kind of looking at it. He then wrote five more novels starting in the early 70s. Uh, the first one of which was The Man of Gold, which was produced. Eventually, he finished it. It was produced by uh, Daw Books in, I think, 1982 or 1983. Uh, 84, really? That way. Maybe I think I was reading it at the time. <laughs> yeah, you might have read it before it, it was before published. It was, before it was yeah, published. sure. Um, and uh, The Man of Gold uh, was the first novel. It had a Michael Whalen cover on it. And we've re-released that now through the foundation. You can get it on Amazon. Um, and then followed by four more. And there was a, a one novel that was left unfinished at the time of his death. So, uh, the other four novels were in, we're working our way up to having those re-released again so people can read them. Uh, the second one is probably, uh, an easier adventure tale for people to get into. And uh, the name of that one's Flame Song. Mm-hmm. Um, and it actually has all of the elements that I just talked about in terms of, you know, vast, powerful gods, ancient technologies, mysteries, simple soldiers that have to go and 
face unimagined opponents uh and yet still report back to their superiors and uh hopefully to be believed right so cool stuff so if people read those novels will they get a a really good understanding of the world yes yeah uh they're not written in a, a style that is contemporary fantasy of today it's it's not written in colloquial american uh but they are written in a very understandable way and like other books that are really tied to settings like if you've ever read the the book of three or the black cauldron by lloyd alexander where you can feel the the world of welsh mythology from the story people don't talk like modern americans it's a similar sort of thing and like tolkien in that sense you know people sometimes fault tolkien today for well, come on, you've got all this story. Why do you have to keep plodding on about this stuff? And it's like Tolkien wasn't writing for a popular audience. He was trying to tell a a tale. Professor Barker was the same way. Some very similar interests by both of them. It's funny, the parallels, actually. Yes, very yeah. much so. The, yeah, the, um, the forgotten Tolkien in that sense. I, I think on some level, Professor Barker was hoping that he would be discovered in a similar sort of way. But, you know, first in market and also, frankly, probably a little bit easier for people to grasp. Tolkien's work was what took off and ran wild with people's imaginations. And that happened with the publication of the paperbacks in the 1960s, which, by the way, people might want to know, was the source for a major international copyright dispute. Oh, yeah. Uh, copyright between the U.S. and the U.K. in the 1960s wasn't settled. That uh, you know, the Berne Convention uh, hadn't really, I, I think it predates the Berne Convention. And so it was legal, although perhaps not completely ethical, uh, if a book was released in the UK, uh, a U.S. publisher could release it uh, if they got it into print right away ah. in paperback. And I'm trying to remember who was it that it, I think it was Ace uh, that released an unauthorized edition of The Lord of the Rings, like 64, 65, something like that. And uh, Alan and Unwin the publishers in the UK uh, and uh, Professor Tolkien went to talk to Ian and Betty Ballantyne at Ballantyne Books. Ballantyne Books, yeah. Right, and said, you know, uh, we have to do something about this. And so if you pick up older editions of the Ballantyne edition of The Lord of the Rings, the paperback books, you'll see on the back there's this photo of uh, J.R.R. Tolkien and a little... A little note, and by today's standards, like, why they put this on here where, you know, this is the authorized edition and fans who appreciate this will, of course, buy this edition and no other. Right? And if the cover's missing. 
That it's unauthorized. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> who knows, right? <laughs> Whatever. But what that led to, though, and this is this is the crazy part about it, was that because this was such a big deal and it caused so much publicity uh, to come up, uh, that was also in the mid-60s where, you know, you had uh, everything from hippies to communes to uh, Star Trek, and it took off. It just took off. And that was the first big wave of fantasy. And that's what a lot of, where a lot of fantasy writers like uh, Ursula K. Le Guin, um, uh, Ursula K. Le Guin's father uh, was Alfred Kroeber. Wait, 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 wait. That's right. Uh, Alfred and Theodore Kroeber. And Kroeber was one of the, major anthropologists, American anthropologists of the mid 20th century. I mean, he was a giant in the field along with his wife. And uh, they were both notable anthropologists. So if you read a Wizard of Earthsea, you know, the Earthsea cycle, uh, she gets it. She got it across the breakfast table. But Krober, if I recall correctly, sat on Barker's dissertation committee. <laughs> okay. So, so there's all this stuff that was going on, and I think for Phil, who had been a science fiction fan since he had been a kid, uh, he was hoping that people would pick up his world. And I, I think the part about it that's that is unfortunate is that I think for today's fans, Tecamel is a much more comprehensible setting. Uh, and yet, for all of that, I think people still kind of occasionally bounce off of it because they don't really know what to do with it. And Phil's advice is very straightforward. Go play. Check it out. Have some fun with it. Yeah. So what is the future of Tecamel and, and Empire of the Petal Throne and the Foundation? Uh, worldwide success, movie deals, who knows? Uh, there you go. Yeah. There you go. And, yeah. and cut. And cut. Uh, no. <laughs> Uh, the future at this point is we want to get more of Professor Barker's original materials back in print. We also want to authorize and license uh, new producers of material for it. Uh, one of the things that we do we do want to make sure about is that whoever is going to be producing material has to have a decent feel for the world. And it's kind of interesting it's hard to predict who's going to have it and who doesn't. I was going to say, how do you determine that? Uh, you, you set them up on a Jeopardy board and... Oh, good God, no. <laughs> That's right. And I'd like to take Soliani Emperors for, you know, 400. It's the Daily Double, right? No, we, we wouldn't do that. But what we do is we like to have people show us... Uh, how they might run a game, you know, how they might do it. I, I recall quite distinctly, I sat down with Jeff D and Manda at uh, North Texas RPG Con, and they'd been working on this, and we'd been encouraging them for a while, and I thought to myself, well, I'm here at a con, they're at the con, let's sit down and play. And they ran a game of Tecamel for me and other players where I was just like, wow. This is great. This, you know, the mechanics were different, 
but the feel was there, right? And that's the moment when I said, they got it. They know what they're, they're up to. And other fans who, you know, it doesn't have to be just me. I mean, there's other people who know Tecmo who could, who could sort of check it out. Uh, and for the people who are just approaching it for the first time, we're happy to work with them to figure out how to, how to get it. How to, you know, it's not a, you know, oh, too bad about you. You've never measured up. It's like, and there's no hope. Well, now I have to say and play devil's advocate. So, you know, we mentioned where, you know, make it your own. Sure. But at the same time, how do you convey that feel and have that knowledge to be able to, to really, I mean, if you're going to publish something and you're going to be involved in a project that involves the the IP, there's a line that you have to kind of have or not cross, I guess, you know. There's a difference between creative latitude and adhering to something in its best interest. Sure. Uh, part of this we address by having a, a set of material. There is a set of material that we say, here you go. If you want to know what Tacamel is, you know, this is what we consider to be the, the encyclopedic base of canon. Go check that out. The Tecamel knowledge base. Right. Sure. And it's interesting. It's similar to, it's not the same as West End Star Wars. Those guys were lucky. That was amazing. The whole business about when Star Wars was in between, nobody knew where it was going. And then West End was running, you know, their Star Wars game. And suddenly their material got you know authorized as here it is you want to run star wars you get it's got to match this right so we're not the first ones by any means who have been in this position uh but what we've tried to do is tried to tell people if you want to just start playing you don't need much if you want to start producing material then yeah, we want you to to get familiar with some of the things like the TechML source book and other things like that. Uh, but that's you know, there's there's a profound difference between playing the game, running the game, and producing material for the game. If you're just running a game for your friends, nah, just pick up a game and play. You'll be fine. But if you want to produce stuff, then yeah, the foundation will work with people to make sure that they've they've got what they need. So if I was interested in producing something, mm-hmm. how would I go about doing it? Well, you will receive a messenger from the Sock Bay Road who oh. will present. No, wait. Um, Whoa. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> if you wanted to produce something, what you ought to do is uh, send us an email uh, at, uh, you can, I think, info at techmlfoundation.org uh, uh, or you can send it to me. I think I think Victor at techmlfoundation.org should work. Um, and uh, wait a second. I know that president at techmlfoundation.org will indeed reach me because uh, I just checked that this morning. Uh, and so yeah. is that the, the official word? You want me to put that down for the notes and let people know? Yeah, it's fine. Okay. You know, that's I. I'm sure the vast hordes will be thronging at the gates. Right. Uh, we have people lined up. Okay. We'd love <laughs> to hear from them. Totally. Uh, but, uh, no, just write to us and, and say, you know, hi, I have this project in mind. 
I, I think the biggest caution that we have is that a number of people have come in and said, yes, I would like to produce a huge trilogy of books and then all this other stuff. And we're like, whoa, Trigger, calm down. Let's roll that back. Let's talk about, let's get the, you know, something good and straightforward and like, we'll start with something <laughs> and then we'll, we'll see how it goes from there. TechML's publication history, unfortunately, has a there's been a long and unfortunate cycle of people saying we will now produce the entire thing, and never getting very far. And we want to nip that in the bud and say, start with the basics. We'll go from there. You know. And so, I'd much rather see something that uh, where somebody understands that idea of. Don't go big for its own sake. You know, start with something that you can put, as I said, get your arms around. And then that, that's what we want to see. So how do they find out more about, I mean, we've got the tech, techml.com, techmlfoundation.org. Right. Any other resources that... Yes, let me recommend the Hall of Blue Illumination at techmelpodcast.com. Who, who does that? That's me and James Maliszewski and Scott Kellogg. And we have a podcast which appears irregularly in the dead of night. Uh, now we're, 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 we're doing it. We're having fun with it. Uh, but yeah, we have about... 20 something episodes out there and we just talk about things you can do in TechML and we try not to be boring and we try not to repeat ourselves uh, I think we're pretty good on that front so far we're probably boring I don't know uh, but the Hall of Blue Illumination consistently gets feedback from listeners telling us oh this is great I now understand better how to run the game and I'm like Great, because that's what we want. Uh, there's also a fanzine that James Maliszewski produces, the Excellent Traveling Volume, which is now into its, I think, ninth issue. We'll probably have another couple out this year. Uh, and that's another way to see stuff that people have come up with for the game. It's cool. Um, let's see here. Uh, there are miniatures for the game. If you go and look up the Tecamel project, there are these absolutely gorgeous 28 millimeter miniatures for Tecamel, which are produced by Howard Fielding in Canada. Um, I'm probably forgetting something at this point. But uh, Baythorm, yes, go to Baythorm. Uh, I think it's Baythorm.com, Baythorm.net. I should remember. But Baythorm, B-E-T-H-O-R-M. And that's where Jeff D. and Manda have all of their TechML stuff. And they have um, Cardboard Heroes. They have, um, uh, they have models. They have rules. They have adventures. Go for it. And... Also, the foundation releases stuff through Drive-Thru RPG. So if you want to know about all the out-of-print game stuff, that's where we're slowly getting it back out. So if I wanted to buy Empire of the Petal Throne yes. right now, where would I go? You would go to M.A.R. Barker's World of Tecamel on Drive-Thru RPG, and you would look for Tecamel Empire of the Petal Throne, uh, which is not the same as the 
Guardians of Order game that came out like 12 years ago. Uh, that's We just named it Tecamel because we want to make sure the world and the game were tied together. Uh, but Tecamel Empire of the Petal Throne, which is a reprint of the original game with a little extra material added. Um, and that's available for 20 bucks in paperback and 30 bucks in hardcover. And everything under one cover to run a game. Nice. So where do they contact you? Or you mentioned the podcast. Where else would if somebody wanted to look up Victor, contact you? Where where do you want to plug all your? Find me at Gamehole Con, which is happening in late October here in Madison. Uh, I also go to Gary Con, and there's a TechML presence at Con of the North in February in the Twin Cities, and also at UConn in November in Ann Arbor. And we're always looking for other opportunities to appear at conventions. So if somebody decides that they want to have a, uh, a TechML presence, let me know. I'm happy to consider coming. All right. Anything else you wanted to plug? Yes. Actually, there's something completely different that I want to plug. Uh-oh. Completely different. And that is, I really want to plug uh, the work being done by Mark Miller on Far Future Enterprises and uh, Mark's... Mark, Mark Miller, the, the creator of Traveler. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Agent of the Imperium is his novel that was released, I think, about a year, year and a half ago. That's uh, a great book. It's a very... It's Mark Miller's real vision of Traveler in that sense, the, tra- the third Imperium setting in a, in a just vast, mind-bogglingly vast way. It's great. It's a great book. Uh, and also, frankly, the fact that you can get classic Traveler, you can get all of classic Traveler under on one CD, I know that's perhaps now getting obsolescent technology, but one CD-ROM gives you the entire thing for 35 40 bucks from Far Future Enterprises. Everything. It's just amazing. It's been almost a model for us at the TechML Foundation about we ought to think about doing something like that because Mark has been really good at just bringing everything together and making it available again. And best of all, if you wanted to play Traveler, you can get a copy of the original Traveler book, the not the three little booklets, but the Traveler book as a reprint in print on demand from DriveThru RPG. That's 20 bucks from DriveThru and that's everything you need to run the game. It's Amazing. And because I'm a big classic traveler fan, as well as also a, you know, TechML fan, I wanted to give a shout out to Mark because uh, he has been very helpful to us. And I think he deserves a lot of support. Is he going to be a guest at Game Hall this year? I hope so. I think uh, he's, I saw him at GaryCon and had a very brief but very, um, very good chat with him there. Uh, he's, uh, he, he does convention appearances where he runs the, uh, character creation. You too can see if you can survive character generation in Traveler. Uh, he does that and he also runs different adventures and, uh, 
in the same way that uh, Gary is not with us anymore, Dave isn't with us anymore, Professor Barker isn't with us anymore, uh, I would encourage anyone and everyone who really wants to feel uh, connected with the history of our, our hobby, go check him out. He is an utter gentleman and a tremendous resource and a genuinely, genuinely wonderful. We had him on, we recorded one of his talks at Gamehole Con. God, I think it was four or five. I think we had, a, we just put the mic in front of him and let him talk during, during that and took question and answers and stuff. So yeah, very nice interaction with Mark and uh, pretty laid back, very approachable. Yeah. Yeah, he's he traveler is like the longest running edition of an RPG I think that's out there if I'm not mistaken. That I wouldn't mean, surprise me. In its original form, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I I could be wrong. Uh to the extent that he's worked very hard to make sure that that's true. Absolutely. Yeah. Um Yeah, and and that's not to take anything away from the work that's being done by Mongoose on uh Ricky Tiki Traveler. Uh, <laughs> Ricky Tiki Traveler. Wait, I went there. Oops, I'm sorry. <laughs> have to uh, edit that out. No, no. <laughs> no, it's actually both first and second edition of Mongoose Traveler are really cool. And there's a lot of really good work that's gone into both of them. Um, but not unlike, you know, fifth edition D&D, uh, there's so many editions of Traveler. Uh, Mongoose Traveler is its own thing if you wanted, you know, the original thing. You can still get it. Well, it's been a pleasure as always. I could sit here and talk with you for hours, Victor. You know, we've we've talked about other things too. Love to have you back on the show. Would you come back on? Absolutely. Please? Awesome. Well, excellent. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. Yeah. Well, this is this having a chance to do this is is a way to try to get the word out. And I really appreciate having that opportunity. Yeah. I think it's a very under, under known. I don't know if that's even a, that's not really adequate. It's a word now. But it's, it's something where it's a part of RPG history. I think, yes. you know, it's out there. It's still going, Yep. you know, and uh, people should be aware of it. So we'll have links in the show notes to mm -hmm. some of the ways to find some of these resources that Victor had mentioned. Um, and if you have any questions, let us know. So thanks again, Victor. Thank you. Hey, there. That was awesome. Thanks, Victor, for being on the show and in educating us on M.A.R. Barker. I just, want, I just want the show to drop now so I can listen to it. Yeah. So I'm going to be pestering Sean every day. Have you, have, yeah. you, have you done it yet? Are you done yet? I anyway, am, cool. am in the process of editing. But, but seriously, we, though, thank you, Victor. That was very kind of you to yes. make time and share your passion um, for all that stuff. So that's really cool. So if you want to know more about Tecamel and Empire of the Petal Throne, we have some links in the show notes to those resources to include the Tecamel podcast that Victor mentioned that he is on with uh, James. Um, I can never say James's last name correctly. Meza. 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 Oh, shit. James, James M. James M. <laughs> <laughs> and a couple others. And then we'll also have a link uh, on the die roll for the the HP Lovecraft Historical Society prop set for masks. Um, 
which you will certainly appreciate it, James. Hopefully. All right. What are we talking about next week, Brett? Oh, Lord. I've had a couple different ideas, Sean. The one that we just got hit with here um, from Jim Fitzpatrick sounds actually pretty damn cool. So we might go into that one or um, I'm going to dig through the I'm going to dig through the list and see what comes up. So we shall see. We shall see. All right. We good, man? We are good. So thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean. And this is Brett. Good night and good game and all. This episode of Gaming and BS brought to you with the help from the following patrons. Graham Miner, Corey Wynn, Annie Hall, Hawk Sparrow, Larry Hout, Mark Tasaka, Pure Mongrel, Chris Steele, Ron Bishop, Thomas Hook, Wayne Humphrey, Craig, Brandon Barnes, Laramie Wall, Dan LaValle, Jason Hobbs, Sky, Roger Braslett, John Hammersley, Old School DM, Perry Besor, Michael Dinos, Jim Fitzpatrick, Christopher Gray, Bruce Cunnington, John Coward, Corey Gonzalez, Eileen Barnes, Robert Nemeth, Niall Diamond, Angus, Howard Bishop, Stephen Dragonspawn, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Eric Salzweedle, Trevor Davis, The Closet Gamer, Jeff Goad, Aaron Coleman, Ray Otis, C.W. Mellencamp, Chad Glayman, Finolf, Merkel Froilich, Lord Tentacle, Joe Swick, Curtis, Curtis Takahashi, Josh Wallace, Kevin Lovecraft, Andy Olson, and Tony Sugarloaf Baker. For ways to support the show, head over to gamingnbs.com forward slash support dash us. Thanks, BSers! This, this has, has been, been a Litterbox, Litterbox Studio production. production.